This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 18 of 24 in the Transitions podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. The best songwriting lesson I've learned was presented to me in the form of a question. I was in the middle of the second week of my second songwriting blitz in Los Angeles. During these uh, writing frenzies, I would spend the morning writing with a given songwriter. On afternoons, I would demo the song from the day before, and we would repeat this for two or three weeks, depending on our touring schedule back home. One morning, I was to write with Phil Roy, an accomplished writer who had just finished work on and contributing to Adam Cohen's 1998 album, which I think is an underrated adult contemporary album. Uh, but anyway, I met Phil at his loft, and uh, he asked to hear a few songs that I had been working on. And all I had on me was uh, a digital audio tape, a DAT, as they called it back then, of the last writing session I had done. And I played him two songs that would ultimately end up in the infamous songwriting graveyard. The songs were called With You and Just Like She Said. And he, he listened attentively, and after the two songs were played, uh, Phil turned to me and asked, Would you buy that? I answered from an embarrassed but honest place, No. I wouldn't buy that. Phil and I began to talk about how to focus our songwriting in order to say something with a clear purpose, not just writing for the sake of writing, or, or worse, writing out of necessity rather than uh, some sort of calling. Over the years, finding focus to my songwriting has refined itself further from the question of whether I would purchase what I write to uh, an even more pointed and, and simple consideration. Why? Whenever I set out to write a song, the, the most important thing for me to keep in mind, and something I never try to lose sight of, is, is why am I writing? You know, being honest with yourself and, and your co-writers from the very start will, will pay dividends and focus your, your writing with a specificity. Uh, why? Why am I writing this song? Uh, dishonesty of purpose, or, or worse, unawareness of purpose, or why you're writing, it becomes a problem down the road in, in later critical moments. And here's what I mean. Whenever I've begun uh, producing a song for a songwriter, and the writer tells me that the reason he or she writes is for self-expression or for fun, I think, great. This is a closed system of expression. We, we can place the outside considerations on a lower level of importance than our creativity and our innovation. And as we begin to make production decisions 
this third party shows up in the recording session. Uh, I'll just call them them. And what are they going to think? Uh, an imaginary audience begins to color and compromise the original purpose of the recording, which was, as I understood it to be, self-expression or fun. And the session then becomes a, a downward spiral into revision and, and destructive levels of perfectionism and a certain clear uncertainty. Underneath it all is the truth, and the artist's actual desire isn't self-expression, but to write something commercially viable, which isn't necessarily different from self-expression, but that requires a different balancing of considerations. As I've gone through reasons why I write and why other people write, I, I can only find one illegitimate reason to write, and that's to consciously steal another person's idea. Everything else is kind of fair game, be it I want to write a commercial hit or a parody or I want to do some niche writing or self-expression, fun, therapy, self-loathing, whatever. As long as you have a reason, that reason is good. Whatever purpose at which you arrive, uh, I think several suggestions can improve the relatability of a composition. These strategies, um, I think, are best corralled into the subheadings of lyrics, music, and presentation. Uh, but first, I'd like to recommend two general mindsets uh, that I think are healthy when songwriting. First, I think it's important to understand that writing is a process. For every brilliant song any one writer creates there are probably a hundred others that aren't so great. For every one song shared, there's probably ten in the graveyard. And, and the, the first songs we write are often clumsy, stock, not so great. And, and bad songs are good because they teach us what not to do. It's only if you give yourself permission to write poorly that you can never write anything that's decent. Secondly, no one, I mean no one, writes in a vacuum. We are constantly inspired and informed by songs and writers that we like. And the best way to feed your songwriting is to listen to a lot of music. Surround yourself with it. Let, let the music you like seep into your pores and become part of you. Internalize what inspires you. There are no right or wrong answers when it comes to influences. I mean, one man's trash is another's treasure, but all that matters is that the music that you like speaks to you. For example, when, when I first started writing songs, uh, writing music, my favorite albums and the ones I listened to all the time were out of Time by R.E.M., Ten by Pearl Jam, Persistence of Time by Anthrax, Apple by Mother Lovebone, Badlands' self-titled album, Dirt by Alice in Chains, and Broken by Nine Inch Nails, and I listened to these albums at all possible moments. When I would write, I had a context for how these bands put songs together, and listening to them was not from an intention to, to 
ape these bands or ape what they were doing, but rather to develop a palette as a painter would before a painting. And I'd say that my early work, like Building a Hole and the Grow EP, were kind of an even reflection of those recordings, but in my own way. And the key things I picked up on those records were the subject matter, uh, the type of imagery the bands use, the tone of the delivery, and the mechanics of those writings. So, if you want to write show tunes, I think you should listen to musicals. If you, you want to write funk, I think you should listen to Parliament. If you want to write Top 40, listen to the Top 40 station. I've never met an effective songwriter who didn't have an awareness and appreciation of the music that has informed and shaped what he or she writes. A discussion of lyrics is a good place as any to start. Uh, I took a creative writing poetry class in college that surprised me with its intensity and content. The focus of the class was to craft effective imagery in order to convey a particular emotion. We were penalized for using abstractions and cliches, as we should have been. I thought the class would be about writing sonnets and employing rhyme schemes. Uh, I, I struggled. The class suggested keeping a notebook of imagery that spoke to you. If, if you wrote down, say, 10 images a day when it came to write a weekly poem, you'd have 70 images with which to work. In reading and working more in the craft, I'd say it's a good thing to expand the list from just mere images and imagery to, to incidents that involve the senses, sound, touch, taste, smell. Uh, the, the lyric expert, Pat Patterson, recommends going even further by writing ideas that evoke outward motion, like being in a car on a fast turn, uh, or inward motion, like dizziness or even nausea. And I, I highly recommend any of his books. He's an excellent uh, instructor of how to write a good lyric. But uh, what sensory writing aims to do is to show the listener a scene rather than... Uh, tell him what to think and what it means. I mean, which is more effective? I felt nervous as I walked into the principal's office. Or my hands were shaking and beads of sweat purled on my forehead. Any effective song should do this kind of thing more often than not. Unlike poetry, though, a song has two other factors that can inform the senses, uh, the music with the song, and then how the song is presented, and more on those in a bit. What was verboten, <laughs> forbidden in, in poetry class, uh, is the same in lyric writing. Avoid abstractions and cliches. An abstraction is a, a focus on a non-tangible thing. Ease the pain is an example of an abstraction. Here, the, the singer is telling us that she is in pain and she wants it to lessen. In a song, you can say the same thing even better by, I don't know, something like, uh, my eyeball for a Tylenol. 
Anytime you're writing lyrics and something abstract appears, think of a way to turn it into a sensory experience. I don't recommend the eyeball for a Tylenol thing, but you get the idea. Clichés should be avoided at all times. A cliché is a colorful but overused expression. They, they add nothing to your writing, and they, they sandbag it. You'd be better off not, not writing at all, honestly, than writing a song full of clichés. Run like the wind is a cliché. Don't spit in the wind is not a cliché. Another thing to avoid when writing lyrics is uh, telegraphed rhymes and predictable expressions. There is never a need going forward in in 2016. uh, No one ever needs to rhyme girl with world anymore. Let's all agree that we won't do that. There is not a reason anymore going forward for us to rhyme heart with apart or start. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've been guilty, and I was guilty of these rhymes with my early songs, but once I began to hear them in every other song on the radio or anything I'd picked up, I stopped using them. And the reason you want to avoid telegraphed expressions is that if a listener can complete the phrase before you have sung it, you aren't doing your job. You've just robbed someone of the opportunity of being entertained, and someone who was willing to give your song a chance but now is subconsciously or consciously turned off because he could think of five or six better next lines than you did. Think about that when you write. If you find yourself with an obvious rhyme, a good technique to improve the lyric is to substitute a, I don't know, slant rhyme is a good way to call it. Uh, Let's take the girl world issue. Uh, Suppose you are writing a song and the line, the lonely girl hid from the world arrives on your on your palate there. You've just written that down. Hmm, that's not very good. How would you make that better? Why don't you tell a story with it? The world is a big place. What does it encompass? What is the girl's world? Why is she hiding? Suppose she's lonely. Maybe she's mad. So, okay, you could say, the girl threw rocks at the wall. Now we're talking. Meter is a stylistic concern, but still I think you should be aware of the rhythms of the words you are singing. Uh, In genres like rap and metal and funk, word rhythm uh, often pushes up against the beat. And, you know, the next time you listen to, let's say, a Jay-Z track, or if you like metal, like Anthrax, or something more mainstream like the Chili Peppers, listen to how critical the meter is to the song. Compare that with, say, an ethereal alternative rock or singer-songwriter tracks where the lyrics take on more of a conversational style. Uh, There, I think the meter consideration yields to the imagery. Uh, The lyrics on The Cure's album, Disintegration, the whole thing, uh, follows a loose rhyme and a loose meter, and it conveys this sense of brokenness when whenever Robert Smith breaks from the predictable pattern. Um, a different conversational lyric record is uh, Joni Mitchell's Hajira, one of my favorites, and uh, the meter there is all over the place, uh, it's, and it's kind of like the travels that she undertook in order to write the record. So uh, it has a purpose there. Um, in 2010, 
I <laughs> I got into this great point-and-click video game called Sam and Max. I don't know if you remember Sam and Max. It was clever and challenging, and, and I would laugh literally out loud when playing it. But uh, in one adventure, uh, Sam turned to Max and asked, What is a metaphor? And Max replied, It's a metal floor without the L's. I thought it was a great game. Um, but employing metaphor is... is more complex than imagery because it requires a mastery of two worlds. With metaphor, you are literally saying one thing is another thing, and each thing shares images and sensory matter with each other. And when I wrote my last full-length album, The Echoes of Winter, I made a point to write in metaphor for about a quarter of the whole thing. Um, The song Money is Water from the album is... Uh, the best expression of what I could come come up with uh, that compares uh, scarcity to uh, to cold, what it feels like, and uh, how there's never enough money to go around. You get the idea. But anyway, it was is written in metaphor. Illusion is uh, one of my favorite lyrical jumping off points, and here um, I might take a literary work or a movie and either refer to it or do what I call walking around in it and and see what arrives. Slight reference may appear or be alluded to, but in illusion, the source work should only be an influence and and never a direct lifting. That's a a no-no. These kinds of writings are the most fun for me because often the the source work uh, will stimulate my brain and uh, just make the creative and active parts of the brain just go crazy. So it's exciting for me. Um, the The song Dirty Wake, for example, is an allusion to Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, uh, as is the song Pluribel uh, in Athenaeum.
What, uh, well, as far as where lyrics come from, uh, two processes can create a wellspring of ideas from which uh, to, to draw upon. Uh, the first is from a method uh, that I mentioned, you know, Pat Patterson in his book, he calls it object writing. And here you'll take an object like, say, a coaster or a lamp or maybe some kind of archetypal figure like a fireman or a pirate <laughs> and, and describe uh, that thing using sensory language. Uh, Bluebeard's hook, stunk of sea stench and rust. That's an example of uh, describing a pirate with the senses. Uh, this is more effective than writing something like a surly pirate. Uh, as a side note, whenever you write an adverb, those are the words that end in L-Y, hit backspace and think real hard about how to say that differently using sensory language. Uh, the adverb is a way to, uh, to tell somebody what they're experiencing. And, and as a songwriter, you want to show somebody uh, what you're experiencing. Um, the second place to grow source material is, is looking at your own life. And this comes with a necessary word of caution. And um, I learned this the hard way, but most, people, most people's lives, including mine and, and, and yours, and, uh, it's, we're not that interesting people. I mean, commercial writing 
often taps into these archetypal experiences and, and not personal ones. And some personal experiences are worth sharing in a general way, though. Uh, writing from a personal posture can be tricky because it's often imbued with unbalanced emotions that can almost hijack an otherwise good idea. It's often a good practice to use sensory language rather than emotional language to describe your personal experiences. For example, writing, I hate that son of a doesn't show us anything other than perhaps you are displeased with someone. He makes me sick is a slightly better uh, way to say that because it offers a sensation rather than an abstraction. Uh, a good commercial example of, of, of what I'm talking about, of resentment, is uh, the uh, Our Lady Peace song, Clumsy. That's great. I mean, he totally puts you in that space of what uh, resenting someone feels like. And there, he shows us rather than tells us. It's brilliant. In terms of like um, the, the actual physical process of writing, I'm, I like apps. You know, I, I, I wish we still called them applications, but we, we truncate everything nowadays. Um, but I like apps for writing. And, and my favorite uh, app for life is Evernote. Um, and it's good for both the object writing and the personal writing. And uh, Evernote allows for audio recordings. Uh, should something come to you while writing words, you can sing it along. And a lot of other journaling software or apps or just the straight-up word processor doesn't integrate that as well. So Evernote is a winner for me. Um, but the process I'll use if I wake up and say, I would like to write a song today. Here's what I do. First, I set aside an hour of interrupted time. I turn off my cell phone. I turn off my email notifications. I lock the door. I am not to be interrupted for an hour. Um, and then the, the first thing I do after I set aside that time is I, I, I write for 10 minutes in that sort of object writing mode or, or even a personal writing mode in, involving only sensory and imagery language. That's the important thing, sensory and imagery language. After 10 minutes have gone by, I step away for five minutes, maybe read something or get a cup of coffee. And then I'll come back after that time and I'll grab a guitar or a keyboard or, or some sort of instrument that's sitting around and I'll maybe play some chords as I read through the writing. And I, I think, well, what here strikes me? Is there a phrase or a hook from this object writing that sort of arrives and makes sense as something to build a song upon? And then once I have a general kind of hook or idea to, to write about, I, I commit to it, and then I decide on the structure and the tone of what I want to write. Is this going to be a sad song? Is it going to be an uplifting song? Am I going to be somewhat, uh, I don't know, uh, conflictual by putting uh, happy chords with dark lyrics? Anything. I'm, I'm going to decide at that point where I'm going. Um and then I'll place some of those images and sensory language into the conceptual and, and structural and tonal construct that I've decided upon. And here, you, you know, you take an image, maybe change its meter or rhyme or wording while, while keeping the basic idea. And after I've sort of written that down, I'll, I'll pick up the instrument again and I'll, I'll sing through the piece. Okay, 
what is this now? It'll feel more like clay rather than a finished piece. There'll be a lot of mumblings and jumblings and things that, well, really won't sound like a song, but I find here that the words and the music, they kind of fall into place. And uh, it takes a little bit of work and, and experience, but this is the play zone where, where you'll just sort of mess with it and tinker. And I mess with the lyric and music until five minutes are up in that hour time. And in the final five minutes, I'll hit record on Evernote, and um, I'll make a very rough recording and try to complete the idea. And then I put it away, and I don't judge the idea until I've done this about ten or so times. And uh, that, that means I have ten, for better or for worse, complete ideas. And then once I have ten ideas, um, I'll listen to them and I'll... Maybe pick the best two or three, and I'll discard the rest. And I think uh, keeping your writing sort of a judgment-free zone while this is going on is the, the only way to complete ideas. Music comprises about half of a song. I mean, melody is king. Uh, a musical phrase sometimes lends itself uh from the rhythm of underlying words, lyrics. At other times, a musical phrase will appear out of nowhere and inspire the right lyric. Um, novice writers and cocktail party talkers uh, often obsess on the question, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? Um, a song isn't complete without music and lyrics. Uh, so it's kind of a moot question when you think about it. If you have a melody, you, you may have a mere instrumental piece. Uh, if you have lyrics without uh, music, you have a poem. And it's when these two arrive at the same moment that what we talk about when we talk about songwriting actually happens. Facilitating music is also a process, much like lyric writing. Keeping a locker of cool riffs and chord progressions and rough melodies is a good practice. When applying music to a lyric, it's not uncommon to truncate, to expand, or even change the music in order to accommodate the lyric. Similarly, if you are starting with a melody, being open to altering lyrical ideas will help keep things sane. And over the years, I've found that just having a bunch of musical ideas and just having a number of lyrical ideas is insufficient to keep a viable, evolving process. Unfinished ideas are just that, unfinished. And I found that those unfinished ideas tend to be difficult to use later on. They sort of remain unfinished. Most of the common successful commercial songs only have about four or five simple chords. Uh, a degree in advanced composition or a virtuosic talent uh, in writing is not required to write good music to accompany a lyric. In fact, in some ways, overcomplicating the music can be a liability. The most important consideration when composing music 
is contrast. A good song is a three to five minute journey. Twists and turns and unexpected events help to keep things interesting, and the easiest way to accomplish this is to use different chords in the choruses than, say, in the verses. Even changing out or adding one chord can make a huge difference. Uh, Here's an example. Uh, Let's play uh, A minor to G for a handful of bars. Here we go. All right, so let's do that, but then let's switch and add one chord to the pattern and see, see the contrast. Here we go. Here comes a switch. go back to that pattern. So I, you know, I think a song really needs to do something like that uh, to hold interest. And this is what's called, uh, in musical theory terms, uh, a diatonic or in-key contrast. We are staying in the key of C there. So there's nothing that's going to change uh, in, in terms of that basic scale. So um, a different approach to contrast is modulation. And uh, this is a really cool thing to try. It's a little weird at first if you've never done it. But here you're going to play three or, or four chords for a few bars and then go up a step and a half playing the same chords but transposed. And Oh, let's try this. Let's do, uh, let's try doing like A to E to D for a few bars there. Now we're going to modulate. Here comes the big chorus. Contrast out when we go back. And that's a modal contrast. Um, that's really kind of what's at work. Um, a lot of cool pop songs will modulate, and, and especially when they run out of ideas to, <laughs> to, to keep it interesting. But um, uh, the first time I can think of that being in, in some sort of commercial context was uh, 1959 album Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, where he had his players modulate rather than play diatonically. It's kind of interesting. Very good record if you haven't heard it, but who hasn't heard that? Um, A third way to think about music is, is, uh, in terms of contrast, of course, is uh, to think about the dynamics of what you're playing. Um, Here you can play three chords with sort of a muted, quiet approach, and then play the same chords with a sort of a raucous open feel. And and let's check this out if we were like to...
So this is called dynamic contrast. And a word of warning, when you're using this, uh, dynamic contrast really requires a strong melody to pull off. Um, you know, good examples of this, where it's the same chords basically over and over, are a song called Low by the band Cracker. And of course, who can forget Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is basically four chords. And there's a couple, you know, little breaks in there, but it's basically just four. And that's by the awesome band Nirvana, which everybody should have heard by now. And these three techniques of, of contrast, uh, the diatonic, the modal, and dynamic, that those can be used uh, singularly or all at once. And, and really, there are limitless possibilities when you start thinking about how to put together a song. And if you have a collection of riffs and chord progression, but no home for them, why don't you try pushing them up against each other and see what happens? Say you have a, man, I got this cool chord progression uh, here and a riff over here. What happens when you just put them together? You know, is it is it too crazy? I don't know. But uh, see what happens. Involving other people in your writing is a different dynamic altogether. And this takes the form of either being in a band uh, and writing as a band, of course, uh, or writing with an outside independent writer or writers. Uh, whichever uh, the scenario, it, it is imperative, very, very important to establish the business end of things from the get-go. Uh, it's best that the details be written down as well uh, in order to avoid any sort of confusion, resentment, and at worst, uh, unnecessary legal fees in the future. Uh, for a band, if one person is writing the songs, uh, that should be noted and agreed to. If uh, a segment of the band is doing the writing, that should be noted as well. It, if it's an all-for-one effort, meaning everybody in the band is considered a writer, uh, the result is the same. It should be written down. Um, for for co-writes uh, with an outside writer, uh, an even split among the writers is usually uh, the common practice. You could call that... Um, uh, the, the trade st standard, um, but you know I prefer even splits to to sort of the nickel and dime discussions that can happen, um, and those can just get kind of nasty if you get into, you know, well I deserve to have you know fifty one percent, and that can just really taint the entire creative process. So, um, in general, the arrangement that fosters the greatest amount of fairness between the parties is the best option. Um, bands often come up with songs and ideas for songs by jamming, and, and this can sometimes uh, create songs that meander and drift away from a coherent composition into, say, less relatable territory. And I found it best for someone in, in a band to, to bring in at least a completed lyric or musical fragment, if not a complete song, and then offering it to the band for arrangement. Uh, sometimes, you know, the band would just make an arrangement of the song, which would be, okay, I'm going to play this and you play that, but we're not going to change any of the inherent structure or uh, dimensions of the song. Or the band might say, hey, you know, I got new ideas, lyrics, or sections, but uh, a number of things can happen. But usually in band writing, it's good for someone to have at least a, a concept of, of what they're doing. Um, a co-writing process 
uh, depends on the writers. Uh, but generally, what happens in those sessions is one person will sort of throw out an idea and the other person or the other writer will, will work with it. And the first writer will take that suggestion and so forth until an idea is either completed or abandoned. So it's sort of like a game of ping pong where you go back and forth. And uh, for co-writing sessions, this is kind of tricky at first, but it's best to keep things sort of judgment-free as much as possible. And, and here, it, this is necessary because what's usually an inner process is exposed outwardly, and co-writing is going to require a bit of trust. And songwriting is generally, uh, uh, music industry in general, is it's kind of an untrustworthy industry in a lot of ways. But if you've ever written with me, <laughs> you know I'll offer five horrible ideas uh, for every passable one. And you know, all the, all the good writers that I've worked with are continually offering ideas, good or bad, and just moving the session forward. So uh, that level of trust is, is needed, I think. Presentation, in terms of a song, is a somewhat controversial aspect of songwriting because it overlaps into the production province, and some producers and publishers expressly request that songs only have a melody, lyric, and minimal accompaniment in order to facilitate a more malleable idea with which to work, and other publishers don't care. Um, however, how a song is presented makes a striking difference in how it is perceived. Take, for example, the, the classic case of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower from the John Wesley Harding album. Uh, here we find a stripped-back production in the context of Dylan's larger artistic response to the album Blonde on Blonde, uh, what he made before that, which was an elaborately produced double album. If you can imagine uh, Dylan's version of the White Album, that's basically it, although uh, the White Album came out after Blonde on Blonde. Um, unnecessary digression. Uh, John Wesley Harding is a simple, in-the-moment album that happens to feature the song All Along the Watchtower in a relatively static, linear performance. It's basically, it's not as exciting as it could be. And if you compare that with the presentation to Jimi Hendrix's interpretation of all Along the Watchtower, which is dynamic and psychedelic and entrancing. And it's the same song, but it's not the same song. Uh, another example of presentation and how it can impact how a song is perceived is the Nirvana song, Polly. And, and here we find a song that works as an acoustic segue in an otherwise dense, aggressive album. The song has this creepy lullaby quality that uh, it brings a close to the first half, half of the album, and it really shows us how brilliant Cobain was. And uh, the alternative New Wave version that appears on the B-Sides collection, Incesticide, shows us a fast, punkish demo of the same song, which has almost none of the impact of the acoustic presentation. Nowadays, the quality we can get with a simple phone recording is often sufficient to catalog an idea. Uh, further demoing may not be necessary, and if you find yourself writing for a particular genre, it 
may be worth demoing with your song within the constraints of that genre. For example, if you're writing retro 80s listings, you'd obviously want to feature synthesizers in some capacity. Now, a word about process. There was a time in my early writing when I relied on unpredictable inspiration in order to create songs, and this proved troublesome when I was asked to produce quality songs on demand. Ironically, I would be better equipped now to have a publishing deal than I was when I actually had one. Cultivating a workable songwriting process is a major step in the transition from amateur status to being a pro. And the process I outlined earlier was what I used for uh, both the album The Echoes of Winter and uh, the project I'm working on now, this series of EPs called Scenes. And I use a similar approach for co-writing, too. Um, the process I've used has produced roughly 200 songs in the past four years, and more, more than a tenth of those have been released commercially, and that's a good track record for me. Um, being blocked, though, I, I should mention, is a, is a legitimate concern for any writer, especially one who feeds his family with music. Uh, an author named Julia Cameron invented a system that can unblock just about anyone who wants to be unblocked. And uh, she also has systems that nurture the, the process as we uncover. And her series is called The Artist Way. Uh, and I recommend it to anyone who wants to live a creative life but might be afraid to or doesn't know how to or might be blocked from doing so. Uh, each of these Artist's Way courses lasts 12 weeks, and during that time, you'll, you'll write three pages longhand every morning, and you'll just dump everything and anything out of your head that needs to come out so you're not kind of thinking about that when you should be uh, writing create, uh, creatively. Uh, so you, you do this brain dump, and then you move on to actual creative activities. And uh, the course has weekly assignments as well as these cool things called artist dates where you do something specific to, to feed your inner artist, like go to a movie or listen to a concert or walk in the park. And, you know, one time I went and played skee-ball for an afternoon. It was awesome. Um, what I discovered in my pages and in those courses uh, that I took was that, for me, uh, there are two things that get in the way of my writing fear, and resentment. Fear stems from the, the concern that what I write won't be good enough for them, the imaginary audience that doesn't exist, and resentments get in the way when they consume my thinking to the point where someone is living rent-free in my head and it's taking up my creative space and I just can't work. Uh, the morning pages are a way to both expose these things and to expel them from my creative space. A final word uh, about songwriting. Uh, the U.S. Copyright Office offers a fairly easy way to register your songs with the Library of Congress, and uh, I recommend uh, that everyone copyright their songs uh, through uh, the Copyright Office because it, it offers a, a legally sufficient date of registration should any disputes arise or later creation should diminish uh, the value of your work. Um, 
And at the time of this recording, the service costs $55 per collection of songs. And if you ask anyone who's been party to a copyright litigation, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, sorry for the cliché. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.